is Respecting Health. Hi, I'm Rod Pahovsky. Well, a couple of episodes back, I had the pleasure of interviewing Rob Moody, if you'll recall. Uh, he led a project to examine commercial determinants of health in more detail. And there was a three-paper series published in The Lancet earlier this year. The project produced a model that illustrates the interrelationships among the various actors, their underlying drivers, and the stage upon which these health consequences of these actions are revealed. And some are very good, while others are well known as having a negative impact on both individuals and, by extension, societies. The papers in the model combine to illuminate the complexity of the causes and the effects of commercial interests on health. So commercial actors engage in practices that include financial, political, marketing, scientific, labor, supply chain, and reputational management. And each organization employs a unique mix of these practices, which, of course, fall across a wide spectrum of ethics and legality. And that's just the truth. That's the reality of our world. But remember, commercial interest does not equate to evil. As we talked about in my interview with Rob Moody and in my conversation with this episode's guest, the model is very much pro-health. It's not anti-commercial or anti-capitalism at all. Commercial actors influence and are influenced by a multi-layered environment built around health and health inequities and the social issues that are clearly visible, like the things that we call social determinants and access to the healthcare system. And in addition, our natural, socioeconomic, physical, and information environments also play a role, as do sector-specific public policies regarding everything from health to energy, science, transportation, and even security. Regulatory approaches and policies in turn influence how political and economic systems give or restrict power and influence to the commercial actors. Here, think things like deregulation, investment liberalization, and privatization in this part of the model that was created. And beneath all this are underlying drivers that shape commercial norms, and these are often slanted toward the benefit of big commercial entities. This is further complicated by the tendency of societies to bear the burden of the costs to society, which at the same time increases the power of commercial entities while reducing the ability of states to absorb and remediate the, effect, the effects of those costs to society. So, in this episode, we're going to dive even more deeply into commercial determinants with Anna Gilmore. Anna Gilmore is Professor of Public Health and Director of the Tobacco Control Research Group and Co-Director of the Beacon for 21st Century Public Health at the University of Bath. Her work and its impacts at national, regional, and global level have been recognized through num numerous awards, including the Public Health Advocacy Institute Award, the WHO World No Tobacco Day Medal, the inaugural European Health Leadership Award for Pioneering Changemakers, and a special recognition award from the World Health Organization Director General. 
Anna's work focuses on the commercial determinants of health, and it evaluates the impacts of public policies on health. And among other notable awards and roles, she's also a member of the World Health Organization's recently established International Expert Group on the Commercial Determinants of Health. So, today, we're talking commercial determinants, science, anti-science, pathological systems, and, importantly, what you and I can do to contribute to improved global health. That's coming up in just a moment. Uh, Welcome, Anna, and uh, thank you for joining us on Respecting Health. Nice to be here. Hi, Rod. If you could give uh, me and our audience a little bit of a backgrounder on what we mean by commercial determinants of health and how you got to the point where you found yourself participating in this project and, and, and got into all of this. And then we'll get more deeply into the topic and the model that was created. I mean, how I got into this is actually a really long story in many ways because I started life as a doctor. And so I saw people coming in um, you know, ill from smoking or their poor diets. And, and to begin with, you think you're saving lives and then you realise they're going back to their damp house and uh, their poor work conditions and continuing to smoke and so on. And you, and you kind of wake up to the fact that there's a bigger picture. And to sort of zoom ahead, then I I, I got into... Uh, I got interested in tobacco control and I got particularly interested in the tobacco industry because the tobacco industry got sued and it had to make its documents public. And I started looking at those documents and you really wake up to what these corporations are doing. You know, so so these were companies that were orchestrating the global smuggling of their cigarettes to avoid taxes and make sure their cigarettes, you know, were, were selling in as many markets as possible, as profitably as possible. These were companies that were, as you know, sort of hijacking and manipulating the science and lying about the impacts of policy. And and then over time, you know, you start to realise, you know, that there's an obesity crisis and you see the ultra processed food companies are doing the same thing and the fossil fuel companies are doing the same thing. And and you you, you realise there's a there's a system problem here. So that's really how how I and and others have got into this and and also through the scale of the harm that, that corporations are are causing. And if you look at that scale, I mean, one way to look at this is the products of just four companies, four, four industries rather, so tobacco, alcohol, food, and fossil fuels, account between a third and two thirds of global deaths. I mean, that's, that's pretty shocking. Um, and we really need to do something about that. And, and that's that's the human toll, but then look about, think about the fossil fuels and the, you know, the climate crisis. Um, so that, that's a bit of background into how we got into it. Does that, does that answer the question? Yes, it does. And, uh, and, and I guess what I'm curious about is, first of all, this is a huge issue. And it's not yeah. something that, in my experience at least, we, you know, I hear talked about much. Um, I'm here in the U.S., and there's a lot of attention paid to social determinants of health, but yeah, yeah. no one's really addressing or acknowledging the role that all of these other types of organizations actually play, whether they're political well, actors or something else. Well, I would say this isn't this isn't 
this isn't different, I would say, to the social and political and, and economic determinants of health. It's just a dimension of that that reflects the way that our political systems have, have developed and, and capitalism has developed, you know, over the last, say, 40, 50 years in particular. Um, and so th those social determinants are just as valid as before. Or what we're really saying is look at the role of, of the commercial sector within that. And trying to highlight the both the detrimental impact they have on health, but of course there are vast numbers of commercial organisations, and some of course are essential to health and have positive impacts on health. Um, so we we can't paint everyone with the same brush, but we need to sort of wake up to this this bigger problem. Um, I think you asked me at the beginning, but we, I got sidetracked somewhat on you know what do we mean by the commercial determinants of health, and what we really mean is the ways in which the commercial sector impact on health. And, and those impacts are really varied. You know, some are incredibly positive, but some are incredibly negative, as, as I was just talking about. And we came up with a, a, a more focused definition in, in this paper, um, uh, which was that the systems, the practices, and the pathways through which commercial actors drive health and equity. Um, and that definition is neither positive or negative because we're trying to recognize those, those diverse impacts. And we're trying to flag both the impacts on health. And here we mean both human and planetary health, because as I've touched on, there are impacts on both. And we're also flagging equity because there are the, the impacts on equity or inequity from the commercial sector are increasingly important. So we just have to look at the, you know, the growing gap between chief executive and average worker salaries that's been growing exponentially. And at the same time, the working conditions of average workers have, have really deteriorated with zero hours contracts and so on. So, and then, and there are equity issues, you know, both that that's within countries really, but also between countries, between high income countries and low middle income countries. So, for the commercial sector, there's some really powerful work again showing how uh, tobacco, alcohol, fossil fuel, um, and fast food companies increasingly their harm is occurring in low middle income countries as their as their sales are increasingly occurring there, but the profits are accruing in the West, um, and and the taxes on those corporations actually, are, despite the harm going up, the taxes on those corporations are going down over time. So there are these interesting patterns, um, inequitable patterns playing out as well. So it's trying to focus on all of those issues um, and tease out what's going on, because if we want to address these health issues and the climate issues, the planetary health issues, we really need to understand these system problems. So what the uh, within this series of three articles that um, are very interesting that came out earlier this year, um, one of them is this framework that yeah. very nicely articulates the relationship among a very diverse uh, population of concepts uh, that I don't think we often think of as having health implications. Um, and I know you worked on this for a couple of years before this came out. So could you go a little bit into the process of realizing how big this really was and then how you de how you decided to structure it? Well, the funny thing is I actually drew up this model quite a few years ago and uh, because I was trying to figure out 
well, you know, I run a research group and I was trying to direct our, our, our research. So, so I, I actually came up with this model of, a few years ago, but never got around to, to publishing it. And you mentioned the social determinants of health, and we've really based the model very much on one of those social determinants of health models, which is called the, the Dahlgren and Whitehead model. And so there's, it, there's, it's hard to talk about a model, isn't it, over I know, <laughs> yes, without, it without is. slides or, or, or without a visual, but let, let, let me try. So there's, there's the element, the, the, the model is in three parts, I'd say. So one part is what I call the determinants of health model, which is really based on those social determinants of health model, because of course th those determinants remain valid. And so that's showing that the political and economic system impacts on health, policies impact on health, environments impact on health. And, you know, and, and then underneath that, there are what we call the final routes to, to, to health and, and to equity, which is, uh, you know, product use, consumption, whether you have access to services or gyms or facilities to exercise or open space, you know, whether you're exposed to pollutants, your income. Um, and, and underneath that is the individual's, you know, uh, characteristics and, and, and their, their health status. And what tends to happen is when we're thinking about illness, we look at that individual level and say, what well, does that person smoke? Do they eat unhealthy foods and so on? But trying to address those health problems at that level is incredibly expensive and inefficient. And we need to look upstream to those other issues that really, really influence health. And, and that's established, you know, we, well established. But what we draw out in this model is those two other elements, and that is how the commercial sector impacts on all those things. And so one element of the model teases out um, both the, the different nature of commercial entities and how they're, you know, differences in their growth strategies and their business models will determine the extent to which they cause harm. And then what we tease out is the different practices they engage in, which can harm health. So marketing is a really obvious example, um, but also their political practices, so the extent to which they shape policies in their favour. Science practices, you know, there's overwhelming evidence now. I had a PhD student who's developed a, a separate model on the way that corporations influence science because diverse industries are influencing science and shaping science in their interests. It's not just the tobacco industry and the fossil fuel industry that do this, the food industry, the alcohol industry, so on, the chemicals industry, they're all shaping science in, in their own interest. Um, and that's hugely detrimental. Um, and of course, I've touched on labour practices with zero hours contracts, but you know, similarly, health and safety in the workplace, so labour and employment practices, all of those things can impact on health. So we tease out those practices because, of course, we need to understand those so we can address them. And then at the heart of the model really is the kind of what we call the system and the underlying drivers. And, and what we flag there is that these problems have occurred because over time, we have allowed corporations to get more and more powerful. And they have used that power to shape norms and uh, our ways of thinking. So they've been able to influence things without us even realising in, in some ways. And part of the reason they've been able to get to that place is because they've been able to externalise their costs. And all these things are interlinked because they've been able to influence policy. Tax rates, for example, have come down, as I, I said already, and that means when these industries are causing harm, they're not meeting the cost of those harm. Instead, we're meeting that and governments are meeting that. And that reduces in turn the resources that we've got and governments have got to then create a, a healthy population and you know, to fund health 
services to fund welfare systems and so on. And so there's a sort of double whammy, if, if, if you like. And, and then because these corporations have become more and more powerful, then they're increasingly able to shape the whole system in, in their interest. And governments uh, are either depowered uh, or, or, or sort of corrupted and, and, and captured by corporate interests. So they've allowed these corporations to shape the system. And so we're, we're in a mess right now. We've, we've kind of let this, what I call a pathological system to develop it, it, in which things are getting worse. And we need to kind of stop, step back and, and realise that and say, look, we have got a problem. What are we going to do about it? Yeah, I really like that piece that included the underlying drivers. That's very much what I am kind of focused on. I think uh, it's really important. You know, what do we really mm -hmm. want as a society and what do we value? You know, what are our priorities? And if your priority is profit, then everything you do will align with maximizing profit. If your priority yeah. is or your value is, you know, let's, and I use the word respect a lot in my podcast, but you know, if, you're, if your priority is respect the planet and respect other people, your policies and your, uh, you know, institutions are yeah. going to be shaped differently and have different mission statements. Yeah. Um, you know, and you mentioned something earlier about the, the drivers and everything. Um, and, 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 and I wanted to point out, too, that this isn't, this is very pro-health, what, what you're talking about yeah. here. This is not anti-capitalist or anti-corporation exactly. uh, because there are plenty of organizations that, are, that have the mission of trying to better health and, and better our attention that we pay and uh, the respect that we pay to the planet and each other. Yeah, absolutely. That, yeah, that, that sort of, thank you for pointing that out because I think it can come across as a very sort of anti-corporate message, but really we're coming from a a pro-health perspective you know this this is a health journal as i said my background is in, in medicine and the reality is we have got a, a problem here and we're just trying to shed a light on it and say what do we do about it and and how do we make the system better and, and what happens currently is people tend to work in 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 silos so we have people working on tobacco and people working on alcohol and people working on on um fossil fuels or within the health system working on cancer and working on respiratory diseases but the point is that, that the drivers of problems across all those different areas are the same and we won't address the big picture issues those upstream uh causes or the underlying drivers unless we see this system as a whole and and, and start to join up those silos but in some ways that's the catch-22 because in the Short term, you know, we're not going to get tobacco control policies unless there's a, you know, advocacy on tobacco control, and we're not going to get good obesity policies unless there's an advocate, you know, advocates working on obesity. But at the same time, we need to find the the resources and the capacity to to link those silos up, and that's a challenge for us. Yeah, there's a lot of resources invested in maintaining the status quo. Uh, yeah, this absolutely. Is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, I, and almost worsening it, you know, continuing to to to, you know, corporations continuing to kind of increase their power and influence policy and and so on. And 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 the, what worries me is that the trends are getting worse. So, for example, if you look at um, how, if you look at wealth uh, as a proportion of national income, and the World Inequalities Report does this, uh, uh, I don't know if you've looked at that, but what they show over time is that the proportion of wealth, this is in rich countries, 
in the private sector is going up and the proportion of wealth in, in, in the public sector is going down is actually now negative. So all of the wealth now in high-income countries it is held in the private sector. You know, trends like that are really alarming. I've also mentioned to you how, you know, corporations manipulate science for, for their own gain. And this is science on, you know, to hide the harm of their products, but it's also science that um, causes confusion over the impacts of policy and, and will claim that policies that the corporations don't favour won't work. Um, but if we look at trends in the funding of science, public funding of science has stagnated, private sector funding of science is going up. So these trends, you know, suggest the system is going to keep getting worse. Um, I, I also mentioned earlier, you know, effective tax rates for um, ultra-processed food, tobacco, fossil fuel, and the corporations and so on, and, and, and those are falling over time. This is US, um, US listed corporations in those sectors. So there's, you know, we, we need to worry that, that also um, there's some great work by the Tax Justice Network showing that multinational corporations are shifting 40% of all profits made abroad into tax havens. So unless we start to see this bigger picture and address these systems problems, the, the, the situation will keep getting worse. To your point about um, commercial actors uh, doing science and funding it, uh, that also gives mm. them the option uh, or the motive even to pursue the science they want to. Oh, well, not no, necessarily. Whole, yeah. yeah, not necessarily yeah. the science that's in the greater, you know, the, to the benefit. No, it's no longer in the public the interest. You know, right. we think of science as a public good, but if 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 corporations are funding that science and they've got control over that science, it is no longer a public good, and 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 that's a huge, a huge problem. And and you know, I've looked in detail at how how, how the tobacco industry has influenced science historically, but. Even if you look at, you know, what's the, they've got these new products, heated tobacco products. If you look at the, the science that, that, that they're undertaking on those products, it really looks like we're seeing the same patterns as, as before. And this is really worrying because it means that when new products come out, we cannot trust the science. So we do, you know, I do think, you know, a key element here is we need to really think about how, how, do, we, how do we get science that operates in the public interest? And, and one of the things I... I think needs to happen is really we should be taxing these corporations because if they're producing a new product, we need to know how safe or otherwise it is. They should be funding that science. But if we can't trust that science, we need to have a system where that they fund it, but but we shape the science in the public interest. And really the only way to do that is you tax them and, and then the money that you raise is then administered independently to, to fund the science that's needed. And only in that way can you really trust the science. And there has been work to develop models um, for that, say, in, in tobacco, to, you know, to say, right, th these are the criteria that we need to meet. And there are systems like that in place in uh, in California, in Thailand. Um, there's a tax on tobacco and alcohol companies to fund both science and, and, and advocacy. Uh, in Italy, there's a tax on pharmaceutical companies that establishes a system like that. So there are precedents here that we could that we could follow. And you were just talking about trusting science, and I, and I made a note to myself, uh, trusting the science versus a degradation in overall trust of science in general, because we yeah. keep seeing, you know, bad science being performed. And, you know, 
I know here in the U.S. there's more and more, it seems, uh, an anti-intellectualism going on and a distrust in science in general. Uh, and that doesn't uh, bode well for trying to fix the science part of this. And on the on the model, scientific practices is just one little component. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's so much yeah. going on here. Uh, reputational management practices is another one. I think that's uh, really interesting too. So that, that's a really interesting one, and I think this is a really important issue that gets overlooked. And so. By reputation management, uh, what we refer to is anything that corporations engage in to sort of improve their reputation. And some people will call this um, corporate social responsibility. Um, increasingly now we see this term ESG, environmental and social governance. That, 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 that's also part of the same thing. And for corporations whose products are harmful, this reputation management is really in incredibly important. So the, 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 the risk of your product the more you engage in these activities. And we've actually done a lot of work historically looking at tobacco industry's engagement in, in, in reputation management. And now we're seeing exactly the same findings in, in, in corporate, you know, the, those, those other unhealthy commodity industries, that really this is a tax-deductible form of, of marketing. And it, and it, um, but it underpins all those other practices because these corporations who lost trust at, you know, they have to engage in reputation management in order to open doors to policymakers, in order to get the policymakers to trust them, in order to get the public to trust them, in order to get the scientists to take their money, in order to get the, the public to fall for them, you know, their misleading findings, um, you know, and, and in order to get policymakers to fall for their lies. You know, massaging their reputation is, is absolutely um, essential. So, you know, let, let, let me give you an example. So in the, in the middle of the COVID pandemic, you have... Philip Morris International funding ventilators for, 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 for in Greece for the, for the Greek government and using that to gain access to um, to, to policymakers there in order you know, to sit at a round table to, to try and influence policy. And um, in reality, had they paid their taxes, and, and we know I told you before about you know involvement in tobacco smuggling and Greece and the Greek islands has always been a centre for tobacco smuggling. So. In reality, if, if, if tobacco companies have always paid their taxes, the Greek government would almost certainly have been able to fund the ventilators that it needed. But by you know misbehaving in the first place, they open opportunities then to, to, to fund things uh, that then gives them more influence. And it's it's a win-win for them, and it's a it's a lose-lose for governments. But but people don't realize that it, it, you know, people think, oh, that's great, they're giving ventilators. You know, but you have to kind of wake up and and see the bigger picture of what's really going on. You know, McDonald's uh, sponsorship for sport in schools. Well, you know, it, it might look great, but actually really think about what's happening, that, you know, you've got a fast food company whose products are damaging to health, trying to, you know, gloss over those negative impacts by saying they're supporting kids, by, you know, promoting the idea that, that um, obesity has nothing to do with food products, it's to do with, you know, lack of physical activity, that they're actually part of the solution to the problems they're creating. So, you know, th there are all sorts of ways in which reputation management practices are are problematic. And yet they're really so often hidden that we, we don't think about the need to address them. Can you think of any more examples off the top of your head um, that really seem to hit home with people, uh, so to speak, where 
people that you're talking to about this finally get it? They get the aha moment. Are there some examples that surprised you and other researchers that you uh, discovered when you really started digging in? Well, that's a good question. I think we're more at the point of kind of thinking about what are those examples that we need to kind of give people that aha moment, you know, because uh, I think sometimes at, at the moment, this conversation is very much in the health sector, you know, and or in the public health sector more than the sort of clinical health sector, and people there get it. But it, as we kind of move to take those messages out to, to, to all the different sectors we need to engage with to to take this forward, we absolutely need those to identify those aha moments, you know, kind of that help um, that help get that message over. I can see when, when it when you when we do start trying to get the message out to the non healthcare sector, uh, it could very easily be construed or framed as a political issue. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, absolutely, it, it 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 can be. You know, here are these left leaning people that just want to change the the the, the political system, um, but it's it is a far broader issue than than that uh, and of course in in all of this you know many of these corporations will be attacking us for our messages because they will be threatened by these messages and that 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 happens to us routinely you know so we we get corporate corporations and their allies attacking us on social media through the press submitting freedom of information requests to our university, submitting letters of complaint to the university, et cetera, et cetera, anything to kind of slow us down and interrupt our work and and try and damage our reputation. I was going to ask you that question. Uh, what kind of a response mm-hmm. do you get when you publish this kind of work? Well, I mean, this one, I think there's, there's no specific industry that, that, that feels directly targeted there's there's a number of them when we've done work on specific industries then you you tend to get attacked more because they feel there's a more i think specific message for them and then we have we have been attacked and targeted you know and i think it's really important you know we're now doing some work on intimidation because um research on intimidation because those working on these issues particularly in low middle income countries do, do get intimidated and they do get threatened. And and that's a, a huge issue that we that needs to be exposed and and addressed. So that's a nice segue into another thing I wanted to ask you about. Is there any tension between low and middle income countries and high income countries in the way this kind of thing kind of mixes together? Are the lower and middle income countries intimidated in some way into acting against their best interests? Uh, Are there any tensions that you see in this between those two class of those two classes of countries? I I think it depends on what what level you you look. So uh, I could answer that question a whole host of different ways. So if you go back over time, one of the reasons this has become such a widespread problem is in fact pressure from organizations like the IMF and the World Bank through structural adjustment programs, for example, for companies to open their markets to these industries through trade and investment liberalization, for example. Um, and so there has been pressure on some low middle income countries. Um, 
that ultimately, I mean, and, and of course, trade and investment liberalization has had diverse impacts. Some some have been very positive for, for development. But when we've seen trade liberalization, say, in ultra-processed foods, that, you know, there is evidence that that, that then links to increased consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages and increased obesity rates. What trade and investment in tobacco leads to increased uh, consumption of tobacco. And so it's clear that those changes, that it, it's clear, for example, that, um, you know, the, 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 the globe trade and investment liberalization has underpinned the global tobacco epidemic, the global obesity epidemic. So there's a tension there, uh, 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 you know, in the way that, corporations in the West have been supported by their governments to push for that, for, for that liberalization it, 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 in which, you know, the IMF and the World Bank have have, have required those changes of, of, of countries. Um, and in some instances, really, I think, failed to ensure that policies like tobacco control policies were put in place to, to, to minimize the harm that, that, that occurred. Um, I, I flagged earlier how increasingly sales of these products are occurring in low middle income countries and so the harm from those products is occurring there and yet the profits are accruing in the west um so that so that's an issue uh, and so in, in in a way it should be a source of tension but i i'm not seeing that materialize that that much at the, the sort of the government level and then in terms of advocacy and, and research you know we I was talking about, you know, researchers and so on being intimidated. It's it's not a source of tension. You know, there's more and more sort of collaborations and, and, and coalitions and people working together, which I think is really constructive. I had a question, too, about um, modern technology companies. And do, do you see there, is there a place for what's going on there uh, in this framework? I think it's a kind of unique situation and they've, over the past few years, actually, uh, invented whole new business models that aren't even able to be regulated because they are, um, it, it's such a new thing, and they're just inventing these new business models. And uh, I'm thinking specifically right now of social media um, and the yeah. impact that that has on health. Anything so on that show up in your research? Yeah, there has been a little bit of work starting to address this, this sort of teasing out the health harms of social media companies and seeing social media companies as commercial determinants of health. Um, so, so that's papers from the health perspective. But, you know, there's the the, the great work on surveillance capitalism um, that, you know, how really we are being modified and, and, and we haven't yet gotten to the kind of health impacts of, of that. But there's, there's also, the, you know, that looking at the financial impact and the power that then accrues in these social media companies and then how they shape, you know, they're playing a part in this norm shaping and um, and the way that information and science and so on is disseminated. You know, we, we, we mentioned in the model, uh, you know, information environments and, uh, and we talk in the paper about even misinformation environments because there is a key issue with misinformation. And social media plays a key role there. So I think that that we're starting to sort of touch on this. I don't think we've teased it out enough to 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 kind of look at the, the look at the details um, sufficiently and, and and figure out what the specific issues are. But I think it's 
very much part of the problem. And, and one of the part of that, you know, we, we try and flag in the paper actually the role of me, media more generally. So me, social media okay. is is one issue, and I think the, the you know the algorithms in social media, I think, can really uh, increase misinformation because you channel people down down certain lines, don't you? But I think there's a, there's also a problem with the media and that, you know, there is evidence over time that as ownership of the media has shifted with, you know, with media increasingly owned again by this very wealthy elite, that actually coverage of issues has shifted to favor that elite and to favor the, the, the corporate sector. Um, and that is a problem because uh, again, that, that influences norms and, and, and thinking and understanding around these, these problems. And I actually think that, that that is an underlying issue that, that does need to be addressed because if you don't have a functioning media, you don't have a functioning democracy. And really what we're talking about here in part is an undermining of democracy because we're having policy uh, in all sorts of spheres and whole policy-making systems we talk about being shaped by corporate interests actually against the public interest. And if you don't have a media that holds them to account, you have a problem. So, what can we do? <laughs> yeah, that, that, I mean that 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 is the big question, and the 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 answers I'll give you may sound a, a bit apple pie, but I I think there's a there's a number of ways to think about that. And what what I do is I use the, the model to think about it. So, uh, you know, if, if we if people can think and visualize this model, so on the outside of the determinants bit, we've got political and economic systems. So we we need to rethink our political and economic systems. Um, underneath that, we've got, um, you know, what we call regulatory approaches or upstream regulation. One of the problems is that, and this is really hidden from, from public view, that we've had a shift over time in the way that policies get made and the rules on policy making. And the evidence shows corporations have pushed, pushed for um, systems of policy making that require consultation with affected stakeholders, i.e. corporations, early on in the policy process, and a form of business impact assessment on policies, which really prioritizes the assessment of impacts on business. And they've pushed that leaks documents from these corporations show they've pushed for these systems to make it harder to pass public health policies. And we've shown that over time it's worked just as they said. So we we need to change systems of policy making so they're more democratic and work in the public interest. And we need to address power asymmetries. And those might, may sound incredibly difficult, but actually I think many of those things are starting to happen. So economic change. We need to move away from that singular focus on GDP and productivity. You know, we, we know that, that that's been damaging planet and health. Um, and is unsustainable. So, and there there are moves towards well-being economies, or or or, or the, you know, you use the donut economic model. Um, some countries are looking at this. Cities are looking at it. Some local governments, say here here in the UK, are looking at these different economic models. Policy making, so, so, so policy works in the public interest. I think we need to go a bit further in uh, really figuring out how we how we do that better. But perhaps citizens' juries. Um, we also, as part of that, absolutely need better governance and conflict of interest um, uh, rules and approaches. You know, we need to recognise when there is a conflict of interest. And, and it's not about, have I got a conflict? In, it's partly about those individual conflicts, but it's also about the structural conflict. So 
if a government is designing an alcohol policy that aims to reduce use and harm from alcohol, then you don't invite the alcohol industry in to design that policy because they are absolutely conflicted. Okay. You develop the policy in the public interest. And at the time, you know, once it comes to implementation, then you can meet with the alcohol industry to figure out how, how implementation will work. But designing the policy should absolutely not involve the industry that is going to be affected because there is a conflict. And then, you know, we've, we've, we've got to recognize that governments have got to recognize those conflicts and really develop um, effective conflict of interest policymaking uh, systems for addressing uh, conflict of interest. And, and then in terms of the power asymmetries, I think sorting out tax systems is essential. We should, if you know, if corporations are causing harm, we, we need excise um, taxes on, on those products. We need effective um, profit taxes. And that does get complex when you've got transnational corporations and individual sovereign states because it does require a global response. We always start to see shift, shifts along those lines. Um, and I, I think that, that you know, I, I touched on um, global media ownerships. So those are the sort of big picture issues. But then I think in the model, you can start to break down the model. You know, we've talked about um, commercial practices, but the, the idea of trying to identify those is that then you can address them. You look at the marketing practice for some of these products. Absolutely, we need to address marketing. We need to address reputation management. Should we allow corporations to engage in those practices? And how do we regulate, you know, um, uh, reputation management? The science practices we, we, we've touched on. So you can get into the details like that, as well as getting into the the, the big picture problems. So there's a lot we can do, um, but I think there is starting to be a, a public call for these things um, and a recognition that change is is needed. And so we're hopeful. Oh, so here's my final question for you for today. <laughs> Is there anything that I haven't asked or that you think really needs to be addressed that you we didn't get a chance to discuss? What's the one thing that you would love for people to take away from this uh, project and the, this concept of commercial determinants? What I would love is for people from other sectors to get involved. This is a bit of a kind of conversation within within the health community right now, and I think it's really important that we... And I mean, we saw this series as a sort of first step to, to 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 moving out and engaging with others. But we would really be keen to engage with others who work in environment or poverty or inequity in finance, in you know, in, in uh, commercial practices and so on. So we, you know, we need a whole diverse interest groups to come together to try and address this. Sorry, that's the dog. <laughs> a, multi, a truly multidisciplinary approach. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Anna Gilmore mm -hmm. is professor of public health at the University of Bath. Anna, thank you so much for joining us on Respecting Health. This is a great conversation. And I am, again, I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this. I think this is a really big deal and it's a big project, but worth it. Oh, that's very kind of you, Roger. We, we look forward to, to speaking to you again and, uh, yeah, taking this forward. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was pretty cool. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, the conversation with 
with Dr. Gilmore. You know, the biggest takeaway for me um, in, in this whole conversation is that we really play, we all do play a role in changing the pathological systems that humans have created for ourselves and that uh, Dr. Gilmore referenced. We're not necessarily bound solely to the interests of commercial and other actors. And, and of course, the fact that those benefits don't always accrue to the general public doesn't come as a big surprise. It's kind of an age-old problem. But my, my growing sense is that people are getting kind of weary of trusting that their health interests are truly a priority uh, among those who are appointed to advocate for those interests. I also really like Dr. Gilmore's observation that commercial interests from all sectors have an effect on health. The public health sector alone cannot create better outcomes. Improving health around the world involves not just understanding, but appreciating and then acting upon the connections between and among all human activities and health. And that applies whether they're local, regional, or global in scope. And I think in order to effectively act upon and improve our systems, we have to believe that human and planetary health are priorities, that there are baseline values. We care about the health of each other and the planet that supports us. And if that's the case, then we'll create better systems that encourage the best and rein in the worst of our impulses that have health consequences. Wherever we work and whatever we do, we have to consider this health aspect of our activities, spread the word amongst ourselves and to other sectors. We have to embed this kind of thinking into the projects that we manage, the strategies we devise, and the tactics we employ to accomplish those strategies. We have to think about this in the contracts that we negotiate, and the kind of educational system that we put together, and how our financial systems work, and, and our scientific en endeavors. And above all, we have to ensure, and this is important, we have to ensure that those we choose to lead us have both the vision and the character to resist taking the easy way out. Transformation is hard work. This requires shifts in values and priorities. So with that in mind, your thought experiment until next time is this. Think about what the world would look like if we prioritized people and well-being over profits and power. That'll keep you busy. Well, I would like to thank my guest, Anna Gilmore, She's professor of public health at the University of Bath. And thank you, Anna, for taking the time to share your expertise and insights. It's been an honor talking to you. If you have any comments you'd like to share or a guest you'd like to hear from, contact us by email at feedback at respectinghealth.com. And you can also leave comments on our website, respectinghealth.com. A big thanks, as always, to Adam Bazer for your critical ear and your helpful suggestions. I'm Rod Pahovsky. Join me again on the next episode of Respecting Health. And in the meantime, remember that when we respect ourselves, each other, and the planet, the health of everyone and everything improves. 